The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's uh, turn our Bibles, please, to 2 Kings 18 for our scripture reading. 2 Kings and the 18th chapter. To me, it's interesting that as we go through the scriptures and read them, we often run into passages not by my design, that we read in either morning or evening and they relate to what we are talking about in the other portion of the service or another service, a Sunday school or something. And just last week we read on the Assyrian captivity and resettlement of Samaria with their own people of their own choosing. And that's exactly what Brother Widgen was speaking about this morning with the Assyrian captivity Second Kings, really summarizing how the kingdom in the north ended. A very sad story, but it summarizes their idolatry and why, so why that, that happened to them. We turn now our attention to Second Kings 18, in which the, the writer, we could say the chronicler, although he's not the chronicler in the technical sense because we have to wait for the book of Chronicles for him, but in chapter 18, he turns his attention to the southern kingdom. And now it says in verse 1 of chapter 18, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. I'll just put an amen in there. Thank the Lord. One of these good kings. There were only a handful of them. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. So it became an idol as well. Verse 5, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Syria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza in its territory, from watchtower to fortified city, now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. Now Samaria is in the north, remember, or not so far north, but part of the northern section of the, of the kingdom of Israel. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. And in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. 
So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshekah from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before <clears throat> this altar in Jerusalem. Now that was incorrect information, wasn't it? Yeah, he had taken away the idolatrous places of worship, not the worship of the true God. Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. There's another lie. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic for we understand it and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me, buy a present, and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh.
All right, well, we're going to push pause on that reading and have to pick it up the next time and see what happens. Of course, you've read your scriptures, probably you know what's going to happen. So, But uh, that is the case. What an arrogant king that man was to say that God told him to come there and uh, that was all untrue. And uh, certainly, uh, we'll see God is going to judge him quite stiffly, severely for that. All right, let's turn our Bibles back to Joel chapter 2, please, as we move from our Scripture reading into our exposition of Scripture that's ongoing from chapter 2. And we'll see how far we get into chapter 3 this evening. Joel chapter 2. Now, just to give you a little outline again of the section that we're in, chapter Uh, Well, I can go all the way back to chapter 1, in fact. Chapter 1 talks about a plague of locusts, calls for repentance, a plague of drought. That summarizes chapter 1. Chapter 2 opens with the destruction of Israel by an army from the north. And we took that army to be a literal army of human beings, not an army of locusts, although it has a lot of similarities to the locust army in that it destroys everything in its path. Um And then again, in the midst of the chapter, a call to repentance, verses 12 to 17. And this was a national call for repentance. The people of Israel were to gather and to repent of their sin before the Lord God. Now this, we said, was given sometime, this prophecy was given sometime before uh, the section that we just read in 2 Kings. Um, So... maybe 80 to 100 years before, something like that. And so the people are in the midst of a lot of problems, uh, spiritually speaking. Uh, They are not following the Lord's ways, and so they're called to repent. And why why would they think it's valuable to repent? Well, it tells us in verse 13, if you return to the Lord your God, He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and not only give mercy, but also, the text of Scripture says, leave a blessing behind him. That's God's nature. You know, God does not uh, enjoy seeing the death of the wicked. He would rather that the wicked turn from their ways. Ezekiel talks about that in a number of places. Turn from his ways and live. And God says, if he turns, I will forgive him and he will live. Isn't that the case for all of us? We have turned away from our iniquities, whether we were young or whether we were older, whether we had much experience with sin or very little of this world. We were still sinners. It's only a matter of, only a small matter of degree, in fact, whether we were saved when we were six or sixty and how much sin we had. But the Lord, it's okay. The Lord will save anyone who comes to Him and turns away from their iniquities. And that's a great blessing. And uh, that's, that's the, the attribute of God upon which Joel is telling the people to rely here. Turn away, and then God will bless. And then when He blesses, you'll be able to use the blessing that He gives to you to, and turn it into praise of God. You know, He'll give you back the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant promises of uh, agricultural prosperity, financial prosperity, uh, reproductive prosperity, And you can use, uh, say, the financial and agricultural prosperity to offer offerings to God in thanksgiving for what He has done. 
So it all comes from God and all ends up going back to God. So we made an application of this, as you might recall, to our national situation and said, uh, you know, it'd be very good if our nation would, um, you know, come to a place of repentance. I would love to see uh, the president and the governors uh, have a confab and say, uh, you know, we realize we've done some wrong things. Uh, a lot of wrong things, okay? Uh, yeah, we haven't gotten to that point yet. I was very pleased to hear uh, the president say in his speech that salvation does not come from politicians, but from what? My brother shared that with us uh, yesterday morning, uh, that, that salvation comes from Almighty God. Almighty God does not come from politicians. And so that was... Uh, a slight encouragement, even though we'd rather go much farther and say, look, uh, there are a number of awful, awful sins that our nation has jumped uh, head first or feet first into, and, and here we are uh, with that. So, in any case, a call for repentance. And I did make a little point to say, you know, people in churches talk about this, uh, and, and maybe some want to have a a service or a prayer meeting and say, you know, church, get together and we'll, we'll pray. And if, you know, if my people called by my name, you know, basically turn from their sins and, and live in justice and righteousness and all that, then he'll, God will heal their land. That's well and good. But you know what? You people, if you're born again believers, have already taken care of that matter for yourself. And the problem with praying or, 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 or doing something in the behest of or in the behalf of others who don't want what you're praying for makes it a very difficult proposition. What we should do is pray that they will repent. Um, some months ago, I wrote a blog post on the matter of praying for others. And I used the example of Job. Job, you recall, in chapter 1, prayed for his children. And he offered sacrifice for his children. So, to Two elements there. We obviously can't offer sacrifice for our kids, but we can pray for them. And the question is, what is the efficacy of me praying for my children? Or it could be said another way, what is the efficacy of me praying for my nation when it's they who need to exercise repentance? And I said in that post on my blog that you you shouldn't be criticized for doing that as if, look, it doesn't do any good. It, it, it's not that. But theologically, you have to recognize that, say, I pray for my children or I pray for my nation. When I say to God, God, please forgive, like Daniel did for his nation in Daniel chapter 9 and elsewhere, when I pray for those outside of me, God may be gracious to answer that prayer by, by forgiving them, but through the means that are given for forgiveness. So I, I will, I'll just kind of summarize the whole thing. God forgive them, but God knows, and the Spirit of God knows, we were talking about that, that what that requires is that that person humble himself, repent, and exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Then he will receive forgiveness. You see that? So you can pray for others and just summarize it with a forgive them, but you understand, I trust, that that requires them to exercise personal faith in the Lord. God doesn't forgive 
those who are outside of Christ. Um, even you know, though you might think he he would because you're such a nice person and such a good believer, right? Yeah, won't he just do that for me? No, because those people also see forgiveness doesn't it doesn't work if somebody doesn't recognize the lordship, the the saviorhood of Jesus Christ and His work. So um, it doesn't do us ultimately. How can I say it? To fit it into that. Our praying for the repentance and forgiveness of our nation is good, but in the end, the nation has to repent. They have to repent. The leaders have to repent and the individuals have to. And would to God that we had a 100% revival and all of the nation's churches were packed out next Sunday. Uh, that would present some challenges, but we'll take it. Uh, you know. But even as some come to recognize that they have sinned. Look, the fact of the matter is, people don't, if they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, they will die in their sins. And that is, that is too terrible to even think about. People who want to find a different way of salvation, they're, they're rejecting the way God has provided and that's very insulting to God. But that's a call to repentance and that's how we can connect into that some. Now, as the prophets do, as, uh, and I, th- I think I summarized this in my next set of notes which are available on the website, by the way, if you want to look at them under uh, the website slash docs, D-O-C-S, or documents. Here's the message of the prophets summarized in just a few words. Repent because judgment is coming and then restoration. Okay, That's Isaiah, that's Jeremiah, that's Ezekiel. That's all of them. Repent, you sinned, judgment is coming, and then uh, restoration will come after that. In other words, God's grace will overcome the evil uh, and sin of His people. And that's where we start in uh, verse 18 of chapter 2. And we looked... Um, at, well, actually, we looked at quite a bit of this already. We looked at the material blessings that will come. And then we saw the spiritual blessings that would come. And uh, we saw that starting in verse 28. So let's go ahead and turn there because I don't want to go over all the physical blessings again. You can look, listen to those on the prior recording. The spiritual blessings are from 28 to the end of the chapter. And again, this is kind of rehearsed, if you will, sort of again in verses 18 to 21 of the next chapter. But, just to finish chapter 2 first. So you have the promise that the Holy Spirit will come upon all flesh. Now we dealt with a little issue here as to whether all flesh means all humanity universally or just all Israel. And uh, I lean toward the view that this is Israel because he says your sons and your daughters, your old men, your young men, and uh, men servants and maid servants. So, and, and we also know based on a reading ahead in chapter 3 that there are a bunch of Gentile nations that will still yet be in unbelief and need to be called out before the kingdom technically fully functions and begins. So this is not yet on all flesh in a universal sense, but on all Israel uh, that is saved. And you can see this, so say in Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God will pour out His Spirit upon them. Uh, in fact, when was it that we looked at those chapters? Some time ago now, uh, at, uh, at Ezekiel 36 
and 37. Remember the vision um, of the valley of the dry bones there? And uh, the, what, he's, what God is saying is He's going to resurrect the nation. He's going to resurrect people out of the graves. The people of Israel say, look, we're done. Our hope is gone, lost. We ourselves are cut off. But that's not indeed the case. Uh, God says in Ezekiel 37.14, I will put My Spirit in you and you will live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Ezekiel 37, verse number 14. So God's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And they're going to have very uh, interesting phenomena occur. This is why I have argued for the cessation presently of spiritual gifts. Uh, tongues, prophecy, healing, that sort of thing. Because they will resume again in the future. That's maybe a little nuanced argument for the cessation of gifts. But the point is that if the gifts are to have this special outpouring in the future, then there has to be a period of cessation of them in the present. And because 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us, uh, tongues, for example, knowledge and prophecy will cease. So, if they're still going on today and then they start up again, they don't really start up again. They just continue in the future. So the charismatic view has to be incorrect on that. But he's going to pour out his Spirit and there will be an explosion of new revelation, of dreams, visions, uh, and, and those sorts of things. The Spirit of God will come and work in kind of normal ways and also in, in abnormal or supernatural ways ways upon His people. So we shouldn't be surprised when that occurs. I mean, after the Lord Jesus comes back, everything He says is defined as revelation, isn't it? It's from God. So we say that revelation is closed. It's finished today. It is. The Bible's a finished book. It's not growing. It's not being added to. But uh, there will be an augmentation of divine revelation when the Lord Jesus returns. And we're not that's, that's no problem. That's fine. We expect that uh, when He returns. Now, associated with His return, look at verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. And then He lists some of them. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me just pause there and we look at these phenomena, disturbances in the heavenly bodies. Now, we understand these to be the same as what happens in the tribulation. Okay, So, if you wanted to, you could take those verses and just put an arrow over to Revelation 6-19. through 19. Those are describing the same exact events. Okay, And particularly... Matthew chapter 24, which you know we looked at a few weeks ago together, 24 and 25. And in Matthew 24, I'll just focus on verse 29 for a moment. He says this, Jesus does, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Remember, they, the disciples asked, what is the sign and when? And Jesus gave them kind of some precursor signs, but then He said, here's the sign. The sign is when He comes. 
That's it. Alright, so he comes. That's the sign. But right around that time period, you're going to have this sun darkened, moon, uh, stars shaking in the heavens, blood and fire. Uh, the moon will be turned into blood. I take that to be a blood moon myself, but uh, the coloration of it will be uh, quite odd. Some people make a real big deal about that. They count the blood moons and say, well, there's one coming like in September or something like that and it's going to be big and some bad things are going to happen in the world. Look, we don't know what's going to happen in the world. All right, Enough bad things are happening already. So... Um, but we just trust the Lord is going to work out His plan and program the way He has seen fit. And then it says, before the coming, the great and awesome day of the Lord, when the Lord returns Himself. Okay, So the precise timing of this is perhaps somewhat confusing. And the prophets weren't so precise as to be able to, for us to be able to say, okay, at, you know, uh, last day of the tribulation at 12, midnight, this is going to happen. And then at noon the next day, this is going to happen. That's not the point of this. It's just to say, around the time of the coming of Christ, all these tremendous events are going to unfold. And it's going to be scary for sure for those residents of the earth at that time. It's going to mark a a great disturbance in the normal order of things, in the divine order, in the natural law. And... uh, it's just going to announce to the world that uh, Christ is here. Uh, you know, we we think we're kind of omnipotent creatures on this earth. You know, we can shape the climate, for example. Please, we cannot. You know, we do our little things here and there to keep the environment clean and to clean up our our little you know corner of the world. M- many people though can't even keep their bedroom clean. But you know, anyways. Um, you know, right, the sun and the stars and the tides and, and the, the vast bodies of water on the earth and, and all of those. These things, will all, God can just touch them. Just, just a little poke, a little prick, a little shake and it's all going to show us that we are insignificant before the divine judge of all the universe. At the same time, and Perhaps this is the reason why he shakes the reality of the world. Uh, he wants to get people's attention to call upon him for what? Salvation. Yeah. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Any New Testament verses that uh, that remind you of? Absolutely Romans 10. Uh, Paul uses this. Uh, Peter uses this. You call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. There's no question about that. Now, this salvation that's spoken of here is a little bit different than what you might initially expect. Here you have a bunch of people in Israel who uh, are being faced with a terrible judgment of the anti- or war by the Antichrist. God sending these strange signs. They're about to expire, physically expire, and they're going to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And God will graciously do that. Um, so, and, and uh, how, how can I say? That the, the sal- so the salvation we're talking about here is physical salvation. But it's attached to spiritual salvation. And uh, the, the way the New Testament uses it is certainly in the spiritual salvation um, side of that thing. You have to be spiritually saved before you're going to be really saved at all from anything.
Uh, now, let's just think for a moment about the relationship of this with Acts chapter 2. If you would turn to Acts chapter 2, this will be helpful, I think, for us. Keep, maybe keep your finger over there in Joel. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has done His ministry. He has ascended, uh, well, He's ministered to the disciples 40 days ascended into heaven. They've waited ten more days. Pentecost is here. The Spirit of God is coming upon the disciples. The Lord's promise of the Spirit came that day and He appears as what I call a lick of fire. You might be more familiar with the word a tongue of fire upon them. Uh, Look at chapter 2 and verse number 3. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and each one uh, and sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. It sounds somewhat similar to what we've been reading as the Spirit gave them utterance. Although they're speaking in tongues, they're not having dreams and visions and that sort of thing that are spoken of by the prophet Joel. So they're preaching the mighty works of God. Everybody's hearing them saying, man, this is crazy. Uh, some onlookers were saying, look, these guys are just dr- drunk and they're speaking gibberish, but Peter got up and he said, look, it's not, it's not gibberish at all. It's only the ninth hour. It's just very early in the morning. Um, and uh, why why you think they're drunk? They're speaking these uh, very cogent languages, speaking the wonderful works of God. This was not uh, the staggering speech of a drunken man. And so then Peter says to the people, look, this is something like what Joel prophesied. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, imagine, he has no microphone and thousands of people are there. When he raised his voice, he really had to raise his voice. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. I said ninth, but third, depending on the time uh, or the uh, tradition that you use. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on My men servants and on My maidservants I will pour out My Spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he leaves Joel behind and he goes on to preach about Jesus Christ, what he did, Uh, how he died, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, and then raised up, chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, He he talks a lot about the resurrection down through verse uh, 31, 32, and then talks about the exaltation of Christ and comes to a point where the people say, well, what are we going to do about this? And so he tells them, you've got to repent. Sound familiar? Repent again. Yeah, always the prophets and the apostles getting back to that message. So, what do we do with this? Some people say, well, this is a total fulfillment of Joel 2. And that forms the whole remainder of their theology. And I say, well, all that stuff that was promised to Israel has now been 
consumed up by the church. And the church is now the fulfillment of those promises. But I want you to be more precise in your theology than that. Here's why. If you think about it, and it's even repeated here, how does this compare with Joel 2? First of all, Acts 2 is not the right context for a complete fulfillment of Joel 2. Why? Because Joel 2 is in the eschaton, in the far future. We said that is clearly the case when we studied earlier on in Joel 2, and we'll see that again in Joel chapter 3. It's attached to the coming of the, of the Lord. Acts 2 is not. Okay? There's no secret coming of the Lord here. This is the coming of the Spirit here. So, right away we're suspicious about this fulfillment idea. Furthermore, there are details of Joel's prophecy that are clearly not fulfilled. So that gives us a clue right away that we have to stop and think for a second. Okay, Joel, for example, talks about all these heavenly disturbances. Did they happen at the day of Pentecost? It's not said. There's nothing there that indicates those things happened. Okay, And I believe they did not happen at all. The heavenly disturbances were, were absent. So spend some time to think about that. For example, 19 in Acts 2.19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath. Everybody was looking at the disciples speaking in tongues. They were not looking up there and saying, oh wow, look at what the sun is doing. Look at what the moon just did. The shaking of the earth, vapor of smoke, a blood moon, uh, all of that. And, and you know, the, the, the Lord is on the doorstep here. No, they didn't say all of that. And so, a few of the, oh, by the way, the Lord said that He was going to pour out the Spirit on all flesh, right? But how many people received the Spirit here? A few. I mean, Peter and the eleven, maybe a few others of the people that were ministering around Jesus uh, during his time here. Uh, at most, maybe 120, if you count everybody that was in the church there or the group at that point. So that's not all flesh. That's not all flesh. So, uh, and I'm not suggesting that all flesh has to happen in the same microsecond, but. It's pretty obvious that it didn't happen even in the near you know, days, weeks, months of this uh, phenomena of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, what we really can say that was from Joel is the words that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then as I indicated, the meaning of saved is a little different. Back then it included the idea of physical salvation. Here, it's more focused just on spiritual salvation because there was no immediate enemy coming to destroy the Jewish people who were listening to the preaching of Peter. So my position on this is and has been that Peter is not saying that Joel is completely fulfilled and I believe that he's not even saying it was fulfilled really at all. What he's saying is that just like God is going to do some amazing things involving the Holy Spirit in the far future, he has decided to do something like that in this present age by pouring out His Spirit and allowing these ones to speak in tongues. Why were they speaking in tongues, by the way? 
to speed along the progress of the gospel to the nations of the world and as a sign of judgment against the nation of Israel. We saw that when we studied tongues at great length uh, some time ago, that tongues are a sign not of blessing, but of judgment. When it comes to the nation of Israel, tongues are a sign of judgment. He talked about in Isaiah chapter 28, I'm going to send to you a people of a strange tongue that you don't understand. We even had some of that in 2 Kings 18. Remember the guy speaking you know, speak in Aramaic so the people can't understand. He said, no, I'm going to speak in their language because I want them to understand what I'm about to do to them. So he thinks. Um, so that's what tongues were for. And we don't have those today because the normal means are used to learn a language and, and the gospel is is promoted uh, throughout the world in all kinds of different ways, technology and, of course, preaching and so on. But in any case, uh, what I think we have here is not an identity fulfillment, but an analogy, an analogy. God works similarly in, in some smaller way in the church age as He will do in the far future. But that doesn't mean that we're seeing some grand fulfillment of prophecy and that the church has replaced the promises to Israel. Okay, We don't believe that is the case. Uh, faithful Bible expositors, I hope, would agree that there is a future for the nation of Israel. There is. Very clearly. Romans 11, 25-27 says, And so all Israel will be saved. God's not done with Israel. He's paused them for now, but He's going to press the play button again in, uh, in a, a little time here when the Lord raptures the church and begins to work again that way. So, Joel has transitioned now from, as we go back to him, he's transitioned from uh, near fulfillment of prophecy. You know, these things are going to come upon you to looking at what's going to happen in the far future. Major blessing is going to come upon the nation of Israel. He's looking at far events and near events as if they're, uh, you know, kind of close in time, but he can't see the distance of time that separates them, as we mentioned last time. But the point remains of our study that there were disasters in Joel's day or soon to come, and there is a future destruction and restoration that awaits the nation of Israel in the pre-written history book of that nation. By the way, what is prophecy? Prophecy is just history written ahead of time. History written ahead of time. You know, It's as good as history. It just hasn't happened yet. Okay, that is what prophecy in uh, written prophecy is. It's like a history book. It touches the events of the entire world as well as the nation of Israel. These are still a major cause for, a major reason for calling for repentance today. Being unfaithful to the Lord, no legitimate excuse for it. The people are required to turn from their sin and turn to God. And that's what Prophecy's purpose was in Old Testament Israel, riding the ship. The ship is listing. The ship is almost turned over. The ship is belly up. And it's going to sink. And God is saying, you people need to turn or around and we need to get this ship righted up and get it moving again so that you will be living righteously once again. And And... Although it sounds negative, it's actually a gracious thing. 
you know what I mean by a gracious thing? When God tells you, you know, the road you're going on is about to end in a cliff. You don't want to keep going down that road. So turn off that road and come on another road. And so it's a warning. It's very harsh sounding. But in reality, you know, as you look at it after the fact, you say, well, that's very gracious. God didn't have to tell us that, but He did. And so we thank Him for, for doing that for us. Okay, now, that leaves us with uh, Joel 2, uh, somewhat in the rearview mirror. But just remember, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Okay, so uh, just remember that Joel 2 is right there with us as we move into Joel chapter 3. And this is really what pins the, um, the timing of all of these events to the far future. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. I'll stop there with the reading. This is really the first part of the chapter that we can hope to look at this evening with the few moments we have remaining. Joel records here God saying, in those days when I bring back the captives of Judah. We know it's a far future context which has not yet occurred. Now, some would say, well, God has brought back the, the Jews. Right? May 1948, isn't it the case? The nation is there. Well, it's not there in belief, number one. Number two, there are, I think I'm correct on this, there are more Jews outside of Israel than inside. Is that not correct? So, you, it's hard to say when you have less than 50% of the people there that, every, that, that the nation is gathered again. They have, they're still scattered to the four winds. And so, yeah, some Jewish people have returned to their land over the centuries. Many are there today. But there's not been that universal return that is mentioned here. There comes a time when God will gather the nation of Israel. Let me uh, just kind of support that point with one little reference in Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the prophet says, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Now please, when you read this, when you say, you, you say sheep, you may immediately tend to think sheep, you know, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me, Jesus, oh sheep, oh that's the church. No, wrong answer. This context, there's nothing about the church here. Church was no, not an idea in the mind of the, of the prophet here and, and of God giving this to the prophet. He's talking about Israeli sheep. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. 
I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Now, if you want to talk about the church, think about this. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. See, he's talking about this fold and I have other ones. This, uh, uh, The other fold. They're all going to be brought together, but not yet. Uh, by the way, that's a great passage. I need to, I need to write on that a little bit. I, just feel, I sense it with the doctrine of the kingdom of God because the people have been so confused about this. The kingdom of God in the future is not going to be you know, Jews here on earth and the church up in heaven. All the fold is going to be together on the new earth, around the new Jerusalem, worshiping the great king. The Lamb of God will be on his throne and so on and so forth. There will be a total unity amongst believing Jews, believing church, uh, tribulation saints, millennial saints, all of that. All will be together. It will be a wonderful, wonderful thing to have that happen. But uh, we have to wait for it and uh, it shall come. So that's Ezekiel again saying God is going to jo- uh, gather all these people. Now, it seems far-fetched. You know, you think, well, that's never going to happen. I mean... Look at the United Nations. They hate Israel. They won't allow that to happen. Well, they're not going to be a factor in this. Okay. Now, to, to the secular mind, it seems especially far-fetched, but even to the Christian who's been brought up on post-millennial or amillennial theology, Israel's just an afterthought or not even a thing now. It's been totally replaced in most of those forms of theology. But listen, friends, that doesn't change God's plans. Yeah. Uh, God will not cast off Israel permanently, he says. For the present, he certainly has focused his attention on the Gentile nations. Paul, he says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And we're fruit, basically, of that. And we carry on Paul's ministry to the rest of the world uh, and, and work with the salvation of the Gentiles. But God will once again turn to Israel. He will gather them. And we see this this time of judgment is at the end of the tribulation, connected here with the coming of Christ, just before the start of the millennial kingdom. So again, here, if you want to put a little arrow in your Bible, you know, kind of in your mind, or a little footnote, you could say, see Revelation 19 and 20. Okay, that's the same stuff there that's talking about. Um, so it's around this time Messiah returns. He rescues Israel. He gathers them from the worldwide diaspora. Uh, or diaspora, as you might pronounce it, and then judges the nations of the world to put them in their proper place in His kingdom. So, He's going to bring back Judah and Jerusalem. So, we know He's talking about Israel there. Verse 2, I will also gather all nations. Now, I take that to mean all the nations. That's all the goyim, all the Gentiles who are not Jews. He's dealt with the Jewish people already. In fact, there will be a separate judgment for them. We'll see that another time. Um... That's in uh, Ezekiel 20, by the way, if you're interested to read that. But he's going to gather all these nations. And all these nations are going to have come up against Jerusalem. Remember Armageddon again? We spoke about that a couple weeks ago. They're going to gather. God's going to defeat them. 
whatever remnants there are of them, or, or maybe even this could be considered the judgment, he's going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, I don't know where I have this in my notes. I guess I have it just upcoming. Let me just say that the valley of Jehoshaphat is one of those things that kind of puzzles interpreters. What is this place? You ever think about this? It's, uh, look at 3.14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's the same place. The valley of decision. And if it sounds ominous to you, good. You've read it well. It sounds ominous to me. Uh, so this is a judgment. And it's a judgment which is connected with other well-known passages of Scripture that have to do with the judgment of the nations. Now, there's some judgment of the nations which is historical. In other words, it happened in history. Jeremiah 46-51. to Amos 1 and 2, our brother went through you know, for three transgressions of fill in the blank and for four. All those different nations are listed there. Those are historical judgments. That's not this. This is the judgment of Matthew 25. When all the nations are gathered before Him and, and Jesus, and what does He do? He divides them as a shepherd, the sheep from the goats. This is it right here. He's judging them. And it's in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Somewhere near Jerusalem, although the location exactly is uncertain. Um, obviously, Jerusalem is the capital city, so it makes sense. The judgment comes in two parts, as I understand it. First, the military destruction of the armies, and then the court scene with the surviving nations of the world. Now, Jehoshaphat. You're going to search in vain to try to identify this valley uh, with him. I mean, you might be able to come up with some kind of little clue, but I think it might be best to refer this place to as a different thing. Uh, let me let me explain. The Valley of Jehoshaphat may be best to take it not as the king's name, but as the meaning of the root of the word roots rather of the word Jehoshaphat. J-E-H-O, the very first part of that, is from the word from which we get Jehovah. Okay, Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton. The Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals. Okay, And Shaphat, or Jehoshaphat, Shaphat is the verb to judge. Very common verb in Hebrew. When you learn in first year Hebrew, you have to pick up that Shaphat. Uh, Shaphat. So, this place is the valley of the Lord's judgment. Just leave it at that and I think that helps you. It doesn't matter really where it is or how it's associated with the historical King Jehoshaphat. This is the valley of the Lord's judgment. Jeha, Lord, Shaphat, judgment. The valley of the Lord's judgment. I think this makes the best sense of the phrase. It is where God will enter into judgment with them. Now, the, you know, some may, well, may ask, is this named because of the historical king? I think going forward in the future, it's going to be the valley of the Lord's judgment. Why? Because of this event. Everybody in the world is going to remember that's the place that God judged the nations. 
He did this at the, he's going to do this at the end of the tribulation. So any tourists that come to Israel during the millennial kingdom may be taken on a tour bus. I don't know how that's going to look, but anyway. And the guy with the microphone at the front is going to say, this is the valley where God judged the nations of the world back at the beginning of this glorious kingdom. And it will be a reminder to the people of the world that God is the judge. And so must we be reminded that God is the judge and there will be a place of His judgment in future world I'll call it history, but prophecy. Okay, So, we've got to uh, stop there and we're going to have to kind of come back and reformulate all this chapter 3 stuff in our mind the next time. Let us pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would help us to understand what we have read and studied this evening. This is amazing material. We ask, Lord, that it would not seem far-fetched to us, but that it would just be a, a, a revelation. Maybe we're not familiar with it or haven't been up until now, but now we are and, and we uh, are responsible to kind of tuck it away and, and just remember that indeed the Lord is coming. And when He comes, He's going to judge the nations of the world, each individual in those nations and how that's going to look, Lord, we just marvel, we wonder, but we know that uh, it's going to be serious. And I pray that, Lord, You will help the world, the people of the world to repent and us, Lord, to continue to walk with You faithfully. We look forward to those days in which You come and are vindicated before the eyes of every human, everything on the earth, above the earth, under the earth, in the sea, and every knee bows before You. What a joy that will be to see people put You in Your proper place. Thank You that we can be partakers of and beholders of that glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.